Welcome to another episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, the Boots on the Ground podcast for replanters by replanters with your host, Bob Bickford and Jimbo Stewart. Here in the trenches with you doing the gritty and glorious work of replanting dying churches. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital, the church website and branding partner you need to help move your church forward. All right, here we are back at the boot camp. Bob, I hope you're ready for the next episode. AMS edition, as we get to do each year here at the Omni Hotel, and we gather with youth camp, summer camp of AMSs, like we get to do every year. I know the DOM's director of missions, for those of our boot campers who are not quite sure what a DOM or an AMS is, associational missional strategist. These are individuals who work at the local city level to help churches fulfill their mission, right? Yeah. Generally said. So, so we've been doing this event for six years, and we started it at the headquarters in Alpharetta, because uh, Jimbo, you and I do work for the North American we Mission We do. Board. We work that for the our, North American That's our full-time gig. Yeah. Uh, this podcast was a hobby. We don't make, we lose money on this <laughs> podcast. We do, man. Like, I, I, I think I looked at my Venmo receipts from paying for uh, some of the technology the other day at this, but yeah, we, we're losing money. So send money, send money, help us out. I'm going to start a sub stack and guests can join me there. But anyway, so we've been doing this event for a couple of years and we train associational leaders to talk with churches about their condition and consult them towards their future. Yeah. And we've got one of our favorite AMSs, Walker Armstrong, the man who hails from the land of Krispy Kreme donuts. And tobacco products. And tobacco products. And Smokeless ones, too. And Texas Pete hot sauce. That's right. Garter Foods. All right. So we got Walker here with us. Walker, welcome back to the boot camp. It's great to be here. Hey, you recently retired. So you're not, you're not even, you're an old timer now. Yeah, almost retired. Uh, almost retired. Yeah, my search team is hot on the trail with some folks, and, and they gave me the heads up that probably end of March. End of March. Somebody present, yeah. Okay, well, congratulations. Thank you. You sent us things that you've been writing uh, on your way out. You're going out big. And, and you went out changing the name of your association. You went out writing some good stuff about discipleship, and we want to talk to you about that. So on the boot camp, one of the things we talk about often is just the how central discipleship is to church replanting and revitalization because ultimately it's a spiritual work and it matters far more the spiritual health of the people than the systematic health of the organization. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you sent us is you talk about some of the challenges for leading a disciple-making movement. And I think most of our listeners would want a disciple-making movement in their church. But one of the first challenges you tell us is that the human ego, you say, First, human ego can get in the way. Leaders often want to be seen as important and even essential to the church. And any movement that shifts power away from them and puts it into the hands of others will seem like a personal threat to their platform or plans. Talk to us about how human ego gets in the way of discipleship. Well, you know, when you think about uh, not just merely discipleship, but a disciple-making movement, you're obviously postulating this idea that you even move beyond your church that you want to see something not only vitalize or revitalize your church and get it in alignment with God's mission, but you also want to see something go beyond your church. And in order to do that, pastors have to get out of the way. And one of the ways they have to get out of the way is to say, it's not all about me. Uh, I've got to train leaders that train leaders that train leaders that disciple people. And that ultimately, 
I would hope it's our expectation that we think of every member being a disciple and making disciples. But for that to happen, a pastor's got to look beyond themselves, bring in more gifted leaders than themselves in some ways. And that's hard to do, especially for the average size Southern Baptist Church, which uh, right now I think it's around 80 on a Sunday morning. Typically, those pastors have a number of roles because of the size of their church. But it's very important to think beyond yourself to even get the ball moving. Walker, one of the things that a disciple has to do is actually follow Jesus, right? We're talking about Christian discipleship. And it seems to me there's a verse, Luke 9, 23, that says we got to do something if we're going to follow Jesus, and that's die to self. And you, you mentioned that's a hard thing for us in the church and in life in general, right? Yeah. So the second challenge you mentioned is spiritual consumerism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so spiritual consumerism is that the church is there to scratch an itch for attendees and members. The church is there to make people comfortable. The church is there to answer all their questions about all the issues in their lives. And while the Bible is eminently practical, it's in a sense, it challenges our very core beliefs about who we are and who we believe God is and who we believe other people are. And spiritual consumerism is really about trying to market are trying to pinpoint and in some cases even manipulate people so that if you meet a need, they give you loyalty. What do you think motivates the leadership of the church? It seems like, from my observations, the idea of consumerism is almost like this seductive magnetic pull for the leadership. Like It's just easier to appeal to the consumeristic talent than it is actually try to dig in to discipleship. Why is that? Well, I mean, you know, Bob just mentioned it. Discipleship is about transformation, about ongoing transformation. And transformation requires that you take a hard look at yourself. And that means that you have to die to things that you formerly or maybe even currently consider to be essential to your life. And so it's not a big deal to attend a church service twice a month, but it's a bigger deal to be on mission with God and to surrender your life to God daily so that you can be in sync with his will. And so, you know, spiritual consumerism, easy believism, things like that, prosperity gospel is all about getting people to appreciate what you do at a very superficial level so that you can obtain funding, support, et cetera. Walker, you mentioned in the material you sent us that sometimes the way we structure our church, the way we do church together, the stuff that we're doing leads to a level of a, a lot of activity, and I think you use the word organizational complexity, right? So does that mean we are doing s- stuff that is really not producing disciples all the time, or we're doing too much, too many things, or we're not doing the right things? Like, how would you unpack that for us? That's a, that's a great question, Bob. I think the simplest and, in a way, clearest definition I heard of a disciple is someone who's growing in Christ-likeness. And so there are many things you can do to do that. I'm not picking a one particular program or one, or one particular organizational structure. What happens is we add ministries on top of other ministries over time, and then years later, we don't even remember why they're there. Man, um, all of us in the room know that when it comes to replant or revitalization, uh, you got to kill some sacred cows. And the people that defend that 
don't even know why that was started in the first place. So I think that complexity is all about you know, adding layers of organizational structure without even really understanding the purpose behind it. And the big alignment question is, how does this help us make disciples? Mm-hmm. When I think about programs like that, one of the things I think about is at our church that God allowed me to be a part of replanting, on Sunday nights, they continued to do RAs and GAs. Mm-hmm. And there was like one kid coming for a whole RA and GA program. And so we knew we had to change something. And so we, we adjusted the way that we handled children's ministry. But I also recognized that there are some things we lost with that missions education and praying for missionaries and some things like that. And so how do we evaluate, how do we, how does the replanter look at all the programs going and evaluate where are we in organizational complexity and where do we need to change some things in order to make sure we're actually helping people become more like Jesus? I was thought about when you asked that question, Jimbo, is I was an interim at a church in a rural area of North Carolina. And a friend of mine who worked association put me in the midst of these people, and I, I didn't know why I was, what I was doing there. And so I met with a search team and the deacons at a Wendy's one Sunday night. Did you get a Frosty? Man, I got fries, I got chili, and I got a cheeseburger, if I remember correctly. And uh, so I, if that was my last meeting with them, they were paying. So, you know, I, I doubled up. <laughs> oh, this is how I roll. I can't help it. You know, if you're going to pay for my food, you're going to pay. <laughs> Absolutely. Even if you're not hungry, you just go ahead. No, I'm piling on. To go box. You know, wow, yeah, Walker spent $24 at Wendy's. How did well, that's do? impressive. Yeah, yeah. So Not today, though, man. You could spend, you could drop $24. Oh, I know. When, I, when I was in college, one of the first gifts that my wife gave me was she iron-on handmade a Wendy's t-shirt. Oh, wow. Because as a poor college student, I would walk to the Wendy's by our college and get a junior bacon cheeseburger for a dollar. And it just would make my day that I could have a bacon cheeseburger for a dollar. Exactly. So these, these people were meeting and I said, uh, do you have a living will for the church? They said, what are you talking about? I said, well, do you have a living will for yourself? And they said, yeah. So what, do you have a living will for the church? What it means? So, so if this church goes under, what are you going to do with the property? And that just startled them because they were heading fast towards that. And I said, if you call me as your interim or transition pastor, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to strip everything away except the essentials. That's what I mean to do. Wow. And so we're not going to do WMU and Baptist on Mission and Baptist Men because everybody in that small church is on like 16 different committees. And there's 12 people in 16 committees. Yeah, and so you say, okay, let's do Sunday school. Let's do worship. I'll do a discipleship training thing on Sunday night. And Wednesday, we're just going to eat together. That's all we're going to do. We're going to shut down all the committees. And I said, if you don't want to do that, don't hire me. And so they did it. And the church began to slowly thaw out and re-engage. And so I think with organizational complexity, even programmatic ossification, things like that, you have to say, if we really ask ourselves and we're serious, how does this directly impact making disciples? If it really doesn't, you know, do we have to get rid of it? That's so good. I mean, we can hang on to things and keep the, I'm, I'm fearful that I'm doing this in my house, Walker. There's junk in my house I need to get rid of. I'm just hanging on to it, right? Yeah. So For $5,000, Bob, I can come help you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair price. Man, that's a lot. And, and a that much junk, man. Come on. And a Wendy's meal. <laughs> and a Wendy's, yeah. yeah. At least one. <laughs> so you mentioned something that is was interesting to me when you said this term, 
And you said this was a barrier for discipleship. And you even said the, the word sticky wicket, which I like that word. I like that phrase. I don't hear that often, but you said one of the, the challenges for a church pursuing a discipling culture is theistic pragmatism. Can you unpack that for us? Well, I mean, a lot of people, a lot, some people have written about this already, you know, as comparison to the true gospel, right? That theistic pragmatism in its essence is about that God is here to make your life better. So here are the seven steps to have a better marriage. Here are the 13 steps to be a better parent. And so that's a gradual drift away from the gospel. Instead of Jesus Christ came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for your behalf, he rose again, he sits on the right hand of the Father, he's coming again. And this is all about his activity and how it changes you and how then you get to participate in something that's bigger than yourself. Theistic pragmatism really fits into spiritual consumerism too, in that, that they're kind of hand in glove, that one of the ways you feed a spiritual consumerism is by a theistic, pragmatic model of how you preach and how you do ministry. And it's all about helping people get fixed in the short term. Now, obviously, the Bible has multitudinous counsel on you know how God can touch every single area of your life, right? But it's, it's not at the core of our faith. The gospel is at the core of our faith. And so when it comes to disciple-making, what happens is we begin to develop this idea that disciples are people that are good at this and good at that instead of God-saved sinners. And so if you're a disciple, you're a safe center and you're in progress. Yeah. And if your discipleship strategy doesn't fit that in there, then it's you know, a men's ministry. I love men's ministries. But they, they become kind of theistic pragmatism. You know, how can you love your wife better? Well, that's very important. But what about the gospel? How does the gospel affect the way you look at Mary? Right. Well, so it's a me-centered discipleship Absolutely. versus Jesus-centered discipleship. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, there's, there's no power of the gospel. I heard somebody say one time, if your sermon can make sense out the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it wasn't a sermon. It was a TED Talk. Yeah. Great way to put it. I never thought that's a great way. You know, and some, some of our guys do 45-minute TED Talks. At least they could take a hint that they that most TED Talks are 18 minutes, but our guys do 45-minute TED Talks. And you, and you leave it going like, what did I just hear? Yeah, if you're going to talk for 45 minutes, I mean, you you got plenty of time to bring the gospel in. Man, I, wish, I would hope so. I would <laughs> hope so. One of the other, uh, I, the, the final obstacle you mentioned to us, the fifth obstacle uh, in leading a disciple-making movement is programmatic ossification. Woo! Uh, man, that's a, that's a I, I didn't know they had words that big in North Carolina. Come on, man. Well, Walker was, he was a business consultant. Yeah. So this, is this, this feels like this is from a science lab, ossification. Well, you know, so I'm getting older, right? And uh, I have ossification happening all over my body, and I'm sad to say. And what it means is I'm stiffer, and, you know, I move slower, I think slower, and it's because my body is aging. And so with churches, what happens oftentimes, at least in my experience, is that they see this you know, church down the road that's doing divorce care. Well, we're going to do divorce care now. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, they see this church doing experience in God. We're going to do experience in God. And there's no semblance of a moving strategy, a cogent strategy. It's more like grab bag, you know. And so with prog 
programmatic ossification, what happens is that these programs or these ministries become an end in themselves, and we don't even know it. Uh, but then people aren't fired up about it anymore. You know, you just have a handful of people that are doing it. I can mention, you know, a very uh, old strategy, but I'm not going to name it because uh, <laughs> I already have a contract out of my life right now <laughs> for doing stuff like that. And this. we don't need this podcast canceled. Yeah, we, yeah, no. But here's what I'll say is that anything, anything that starts out can get stale. Yeah. You know, and so it's more like, are, are we willing, you know, to, to hold things loosely and saying, hey, God really used that for a period of time in our church, mm-hmm. but we need to move on. The people that don't want to move on are clinging to something that's stale and rusty and doesn't have the impact it used to. For me, that's youth lock-ins. Oh, man. Oh, man. That took eight years off my life expense. For every lock-in, you'd lose a year of life. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely do. <laughs> I know. I used to think about, you know, I was in a huge church, and I, and I did one with 88 junior high students one oh time. Gosh. We took them to, like, to the YMCA and to bowling and movies and ate junk food. And I brought this friend, Mark Long, uh, along with me, and and he said, I, I'm kind of interested in youth ministry. I said, well, come on, jump into this, Mark. And at the end, of the, when rolling, when morning rolled around, he's like, I don't know, Walker. I yeah. don't know about this ministry thing. <laughs> it's not for me. Not for me. Hey, I lied. There was a, there was a sixth obstacle that you list to us. Uh, it says a sixth obstacle or difficulty in leading a disciple-making movement is a truncated vision. Because disciple-making is a person-by-person enterprise. Many leaders feel that it will be too small or move too slowly to make a significant difference. Talk to us about how a, what is a truncated vision and how does that get in the way of a disciple-making movement? Well, I think all these things, and you probably can see they're all interrelated, connected. But truncated vision is that the Bible says, don't despise the day of small things, right? So, I mean, the greatest movement ever known to man was a movement that Jesus has initiated. And when the Spirit came at Pentecost, there were 120 people. There were 6,000. There, there was 120 people. And the Spirit fell on every one of those individuals, and they were empowered to speak languages they had not learned to proclaim the gospel. And then Peter batted clean up and just said, let me explain to you what this go, what's going on, you know? And so, so I think that truncated vision in this case is that, in regards to disciple-making, is that, well, I've got to have something big yeah. for it to work. And since I can't do anything big, I'm not going to do it at all. Instead of saying, could you disciple three guys this year with having them make the commitment that each of them over the next year would disciple three? And so that's slow growth, right? It's, that's not dramatic. But, you know, the power of exponential, exponential multiplication is, man, you know, by the time you hear like, hit like year 15, you know, you're reaching thousands. Um, so I just think truncated vision is case is that we reduce discipleship to a program. We reduce it, you know, to, to something only big churches with big staffs can do. And it just doesn't fit the book of Acts, for example. Yeah. Or right. the ministry of Jesus. Yeah. Right. I mean, most relation, most discipleship is all about relationship. Yeah, man. And life con- on life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the context of in real life, mm-hmm. doing life together, talking about what's going on in your life. And, and just meeting to talk over God's word, right? So it's, um, I mean, I, I think in my life, 
I can think of one discipleship setting where we used a resource that was the springboard for great conversation and study. And that was experiencing God, right? I, and I met with older guys and we did that. I, I think of a lot of dis- youth discipleship things where we got together and we filled in the blanks, but then we just, you know, went or ran around, did stupid stuff afterwards, right? So that wasn't discipleship. That was like hanging out, buying time just to get pizza. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. But, you know, when I got saved, I got saved at 18. I was raised in church. I didn't really understand the personal implications of the gospel. And I went to this Bible study that this pharmacist in town in Ashburn, North Carolina, named Stan Haywood, who's in heaven now, uh, he led this Milk to Meat series of navigators. And we just opened up the Bible talking and hanging out. And so I got saved along with two of my best friends. And then we Friday night, we weren't partying, partying any longer. We didn't know what to do. So we went by Stan's pharmacy. And we'd sit there for like an hour. He'd wait on customers. We said, what about this? And he'd open up the Bible and start talking to us about yeah. this thing. And for that whole summer, after the three of us got saved, that's what we did almost every Friday night was yeah. a good bug stand. Uh, but I mean, that's life on life. Yeah, I was talking with a pastor recently of a small rural church, six to 10 people attending on Sunday morning. He's working 50 hours a week, his secular job and his worship leader just got in an argument with the leader of their women's missions ministry and, and, and the worship leader is, is gone and he's, he's gone now. And I said, what are you doing? And they he can't find like dead or gone yeah, like yeah, They can't find no, his like, body. <laughs> he's left. He got angry and left. It, the was, it wasn't super clear. I think, I think he got angry. He left. He's, he's and mad he killed because of this lady. <laughs> and so I asked the pastor, I said, uh, so what are you doing about worship? anymore i do everything did i get there you know leading worship announcements you know doing sermon and the small group and the whole thing and and i said are you discipling anybody and he goes well i don't have time to disciple anybody and i said well hold on let's you know let's talk about this i said here's what you got to understand is that's actually the job is is so let's find some other people to do announcements pointing to replant hub for worship and just said look let's let's get as much of that off your plate as possible and is there one guy that's coming to the church at least one that you can sit down with and disciple intentionally uh, and he said yeah and i said well let me back up have you ever been discipled and he goes well to be honest no i said okay so his AMS was there with me and I looked at the AMS and I said, have you ever been discipled? Cause I, I, before I agreed to get him to disciple him, I needed to make sure this guy, and he said, yes. And I said, would you agree to disciple the pastor? Well, he disciples a member or two. And I said, well, look, Brilliant. if nothing else, I mean, this is, we're moving in the right direction very slowly, but quicker than you leading worship, doing announcements, leading Bible study and children's ministry, and then burn it out. It actually, it's going to work quicker than that. Mm-hmm. And that's biblical, right? Yeah. <laughs> and trust yeah. a reliable man who won't trust a reliable man. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that, and there's interesting, and I've heard, I, I think I was doing some reading one time and, and somebody raised the question, why did we lose a generation of disciple makers? Like what happened? Right. Trace it back. And, and they didn't answer it. Right. So maybe that's. So boot campers, like, leave us, leave us a comment, drop us an email, let us know if you know the answer to that question. We'd love to, maybe yeah. that's a new episode. Yeah. Well, it, here's the last thing I would say is I, I told that pastor, I said, here's, here's the good news. So much of ministry and pastoral ministry, you end up feeling like you're not doing anything spiritual. 
when you're negotiating copier leases and you're dealing with reefs and you're dealing with angry members. And, uh, if you'll commit to 30 minutes to an hour of every week to sit down with the Bible open and disciple somebody, it'll be the saving grace of that week. When everything else in that week is horrible, 30 minutes of just sitting in the word with another believer and helping each other grow in the Lord, I mean, just might help you not quit that week. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, um, if, you know, keep your eye on the prize. What is the prize? Life transformation. That's the prize. And in addition to that, life transformation that leads to other life transformation. Yeah. And so then you become more relational in your, in your evangelism approach. Uh, you definitely become more relational in your, in your view of disciple making. It's not just a Bible study, right? Um, and then, you know, you, it's got to be you know, replicable. It's, it's got to uh, be something that Joe, who's a mechanic down the street, uh, can do it after you've done it for him. If it's not, I mean, you think about, I mean, how many of the original apostles were literate? Yeah. You know, we don't even think, you know, we don't even yeah. think about that. Yeah. And whatever they had in the early church before the whole canon was completed, they used it. Yeah. You know, and um, we're 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 we've got plenty of resources. We've got more than enough resources. Yeah, and it, uh, uh, the problem we have is not resources; it's just practical commitment and the wholehearted commitment of saying, "I'm gonna pour my life into other people and challenge them to do the same." Walker, thanks for coming to the boot camp again. Yes, sir. We always love having you on here. Thanks, bud. Welcome to another episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast. The Boots on the Ground Podcast for replanters by replanters with your host, Bob Bickford and Jimbo Stewart. Here in the trenches with you doing the gritty and glorious work of replanting dying churches. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital, the church website and branding partner you need to help move your church forward.